Good morning. Uh, we are in uh, Matthew, still in Matthew chapter 5. And um, if you remember last week, I was working through salt and light and then just ran out of breath. And so we'll have to pick up with Christ and his comments about the fulfilling the law and versus breaking the law. And then we'll get into the subject of anger. Everybody's favorite subject. Talking about anger. Let's start out with reading from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Oh, Lord, I, we ask you to be present here in this room with the power of your Holy Spirit. These are not easy things to look into. I resist wanting to do this. I resist wanting to do it because I'm my own heart. But then I also resist wanting to do this as the preacher because it feels hypocritical at times. But Lord, we believe that you by your sovereign hand have appointed this moment to face these difficult words and to come to terms with what you are telling us. And we will submit to that. We will listen to what you have to say to us. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would indwell within me and take your words and push them through my mouth. Let me say nothing of my own wisdom, of my own wants and desires, but let every word that comes forth from this mouth be your utterances for all of us to hear for your goodness, for your glory, 
for our redemption and salvation. And I ask it, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So, here we are. And this whole thing of the Sermon on the Mount sort of makes sense as we're going along through it. But at least for me, this paragraph about Jesus fulfilling the law and not breaking it is like just weird. What? Why is that there? It doesn't fit into everything else that Jesus is talking about. So, so why is he all of a sudden just dropping this random thought in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount? Well, of course, the first thing I have to admit that is not random and if it looks random to me, then I'm not seeing what Jesus is trying to tell us. Because his speaking it and his placement of it is not random at all. It has a purpose. He's about to jump into it with everybody listening. All right, these next several sections where he talks about anger, Lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, giving to the needy. He's going to step into it big with all of these passages. I mean, he even starts out with, you have heard it was said, don't do this or do this. But I tell you, do something different. He's messing with people now. And the people he's primarily messing with are going to be the Pharisees and the scribes because they're not going to like this part. They're not going to like him saying, you've heard one of somebody say, tell you this, but I'm going to tell you now this. They're going to actually accuse him of abolishing and breaking the law. And so Jesus just, he just sort of deals with this one before he even steps into it. He's just right up front. Look, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. This is a problem. This is a problem. Either he's telling us the truth, which means all these next several sections of the Sermon on the Mount are going to be things we got to really deal with. Or... He's not telling us the truth because he's not who he says he is and he's a liar and yada, yada, yada. And now he's just messing with everything. If if Jesus is a false Messiah, verse 17 is a big problem. Heck, even if he is the Messiah, verse 17 is a big problem. Because he's saying that everybody's got it wrong. In that day, on the, the day he's standing on that hillside, he is looking into the crowd and saying, everybody that's been teaching you the law and the prophets has got it wrong. But you can just imagine Peter and John and James on the side going, oh, why did he say that? Did he have to say that? I mean, that was, did he have to say that? Right. I'm sure they had that experience multiple times. Why did he have to say that? Right. Because they, they, they know you just, you just kicked a hornet's nest. You just kicked a hornet's nest, Jesus. Did you really need to kick that one? Yes, he did. 
Why? Well, you'll have to wait till we get to the other sections of the Sermon on the Mount. But the short answer is, look, yeah, we all, we, we, we instinctively understand this. We instinctively understand that when, when things have gotten off track, somebody has to do the hard thing to kick it back onto track, right? But we generally don't like that because kicking it back onto the track is often an unpleasant experience. And we'd rather just not have that trouble, right? But there has to be a course correction done. And the only way to correct this course is to point out they've been telling you the wrong thing. And why does that even matter, right? Can't you just leave it alone, Jesus? No, because it's building a prison around every person who is believing what they've been told, but they've been told the wrong thing. You're being trapped in a prison. You think you're being obedient and righteous. You think you are obeying the Lord and you are not. Yes, you're doing it sincerely, but you're sincerely wrong. This is a problem. It is unloving for Jesus to leave us in our sincerely wrong states. He's not loving us by doing this. He's loving. The most loving thing he can do is to kick everything back on track. That's the most loving thing he can do. And that's what Jesus is getting started here with. And so when he says that I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's, look, he, he, is, he is making a point. He's clearly trying to say to everybody listening, look, this is going to sound like I'm breaking the law, but it's not. I'm getting the law back on track and I am here to fulfill every piece of it. Now, that just can sometimes just like zoom right over our heads. Do you hear what he just said? I am here to fulfill it. Who do you think you are? There's numerous places where Jesus' intent of who he thinks he is is extremely clear. But here is one of those subtle times, those subtle places in Scripture where he is not hiding that he believes and is professing that I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And he's making that clear and, well, not exactly clear. It's a little vague, but he's making that point here. And he's making the point that nothing, there is no piece of the law of the prophets. The, what we know is the Old Testament. There is no piece of it that I'm going to break or do away with. But I'm going to fulfill it. You know, some Bibles will even say that, you know, this uh, modern English translations will often say that not an iota or not a dot. Some of the older translations will use the phrase a jot and a tittle. This is one of those times where trying to find the right words to use in translation is challenging. In a modern context, iotas and dots are more helpful probably. But, but the terms jot and tittle are much more specific than just an iota or a dot. In Jesus' day, he was speaking to the group in Aramaic. Most of the people were familiar with Hebrew and spoke Hebrew. The jot and tittles designate 
the, the slightest marks and notations that differentiate Aramaic and Hebrew letters. I spent hours putting together this wonderful little example to illustrate to you the differences and how easy it is. Trust me, as a guy who barely survived getting through Hebrew, it is really easy to miss the jot and the tittle and think you're looking at a different letter than what's there. And I, and then I realized, wait a minute, without a screen to project these onto, there's just no way to really show it to you. So you just have to trust me. You know, just imagine the closest illustration we can come to as English speakers is you take an I and you forget to put a dot on it. Oh, is that an I or is it a half an L? I don't know. Well, fortunately, context of the word helps us figure out what is the correct letter that we're supposed to see, right? Or someone makes a T and forgets to cross it. Was that a T or is that an L? What is that letter? This is what Jesus is referring to. This is, this is what it means that not even a missing dot on an I or a missing crossbar on a T will fall from the law until heaven and earth have passed away. And him, Jesus, as the fulfillment of this law, the fulfillment of everything that is commanded of God's people in the Old Testament. And then he goes on to illustrate that we are to follow him in living as to fulfill the law. Okay, Jesus, I'm all right with you coming here to fulfill the law and maybe do a course correction and, you know, you living this way. But I'm not so sure about this part where you ask me to live this way. I mean, I mean, first off, as we start going through these different sections, we begin to realize it's not about the rules, but it's about the intent and heart of our Father in heaven in our daily circumstances. See, and the immediate problem that we all recognize is that we want rules to keep so we can be in control. Right? Andre over here is an engineer. You have to have rules to follow to be in control. And we want that. We want that so that it's life is predictable so that events are controllable. And Jesus says, no, no, no ritualistic rule that involves only the mind of my disciples, the ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven. We must listen and judge with a pure heart. Oh, great. Not only do I not have rules to keep anymore, I have to have a pure heart to know what I'm supposed to do. I mean, I've said this every week. This is impossible. This is impossible. But that is what he's asking of us. And, it's, and we have this feeling. I mentioned it. I've said it every week. You ask too much, Jesus. You are asking too much. But only, it's only too much if we refuse to do it in the spirit. Let me see if I can illustrate this as we walk through the subject of anger. 
The first thing we have to understand about Jesus' words to us here in this passage on the subject of anger is we have to understand the difference between evil anger and righteous anger. The idea that Jesus is speaking of here with anger is this vengeful and hatred from an offense against you or me that's equals to a desire to murder. It will come as no surprise to most of you who've gotten to know me a little bit that there are times when individuals irritate me so much, I'm thinking 45. Just randomly thinking the number 45 because I happen to have a few of those around and I wouldn't mind lobbing a few of those in their direction with precision as well which is kind of a contradiction, right? You don't lob with precision. (laughs) I'm glad you guys could laugh at that one. (laughs) This is the anger God is upset with. This is the anger Jesus is, is, is against. That I'm so offended by what you've done to me, the king of the universe, the supreme ruler of my world, that I want to kill you for revenge and punishment. That's the anger that Jesus is against. That is an evil anger. It's evil because it does not care about the value of human life. It does not care about anything except getting what I want. That's what makes it evil. The righteous anger that Jesus talks about, that scripture talks about, is the kind of anger that's driven by the injustice and inhumane victimization of others. That's righteous anger. It's not centered around me, but about the genuine wrong we see done to others. The problem is, is we can't even do that good. Somehow, in the midst of this righteous anger, we corrupt it with our own evil desires and make it bad. This is so frustrating. I can't even do righteous anger good. Well, at this moment, I also have to kind of pause for a second and deal with an accusation that we hear outside the church that Jesus is a hypocrite. Here Jesus is, you know, preaching against anger. He's laying the wood to them about anger. But yet, what does he do? He gets mad and starts throwing tables in the temple. Is Jesus being a hypocrite? Look at chapter 21. starting in verse 12 of chapter 21 of the book of Matthew, Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. This is a pretty angry Jesus. I mean, look, I don't care how you try to sugarcoat it. 
When somebody's flipping tables, they're angry. Period. Was Jesus being hypocritical? Was Jesus guilty of the very evil anger that he's railing against here in Matthew chapter 5? No, he is not. His anger is the righteous anger. And he's... The stunning thing about Jesus is he can actually practice righteous anger and not corrupt it with evil desires. His anger is at how the people who have come to worship God are being victimized in a humane and unjust way. First off, that area is supposed to be devoted to prayer. And can you, look, it's chaos in the court of the Gentiles with all these money changers, all these pigeons cooing, pigeons getting loose, running around, goats bleeping, sheep baying. I mean, it's just chaos. And I'm supposed to pray in the middle of all that chaos? My, you know, that's the place where the Gentiles worshiped God. And you've created into such a place of chaos, I can't even hear myself think. Yes, Jesus was truly righteously angry at the inhumane and unjust treatment of the people who came to worship. By itself alone, that's all the justification he needed for his anger. But then you throw on top of it the ridiculous overcharging of people. You talk about the dangers of a monopoly, right? We talk If you look at economics, you discuss the dangers of a monopoly in economics. It's this idea that the monopoly is control of everything. They're the only source of that one particular item or product or service. And because of that, they control the whole market. They can set their prices. They can do whatever they want. And everybody just has to take it. That's what was happening here. The rulers of the temple had created this racket to where you couldn't bring your own animal into the temple to sacrifice it. You had to buy one of theirs. This is a pretty good deal. The only way you can sacrifice an animal is if you buy it from us. Oh, and by the way, you have to do all of your purchases at the temple in shekels because that's the temple currency. But nobody uses shekels outside the temple. We all use the Roman coins and the Roman currency. Oh, well, then uh, you'll have to go down here to that table and exchange your Roman filthy, stinking dog currency for shekels. Then come back over to this table and buy your animal. So they were doubly exorbitant rates. The exchange rate was insanely ridiculous between the Roman coin and the shekels of the temple. Then you come over with those overpriced shekels that you've had to pay through the nose for, and you pay through the nose again to buy the animal that's overpriced because you can't buy it anywhere else. You can't exchange shekels for Roman coins anywhere else, and you can't exchange shekels for animals anywhere else but right here. This is the kind of anger that was driving Jesus at this moment. Then Jesus, you know, it's, it's, it's enough that he's doing all of this. But then he really starts to mess with everybody by talking about the word fool. Now, the first thing we have to understand is when Jesus uses the word fool or the word translated fool here in this passage on anger, he's using a particular word, a particular Aramaic word that was a very abusive term. It was meant 
as a slanderous and murderous to someone's reputation term. More so, it was, it was when the accusation and the insult is unjustified by who that person really is. Look, you understand this, this, what Jesus is talking about here instinctively. This is when you're just PO'd at somebody and you call them a terrible name knowing that that's not true about that person. They are not a fool in that sense. They're not a female dog. They know who both their parents are. Using these insulting terms for the purpose of slandering them just because, well, I can't really lob any 45s at them, so I'll just lob these verbal bombs at them. That's what Jesus is talking about when he uses the word fool. Well, shoot. Jesus uses the word fool. Here we go again. Is Jesus being a hypocrite? Look at Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? So here's Jesus railing against word, calling somebody a fool in the Sermon on the Mount. And a few weeks, months later, here he is in the temple, laying the wood to the Pharisees, calling them fools. Is Jesus being a hypocrite? No. Because the Pharisees really were fools. They literally epitomized the word foolish. Let me get this straight. If I swear an oath on my mama, it doesn't mean nothing. But if I swear an oath on my mama's grave, it means something. What the heck? Why does the grave of my mama matter more than my mama? It doesn't. It's just foolishness. It's even worse than foolishness. It's them wanting to manipulate situations to where they can sound like they're making a promise that they're never going to keep. Don't you just hate those kind of folks? They're like snakes in the grass. They talk like they're going to keep a promise, never, ever, ever intending to keep it. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how we need to be reconciled with those that we have offenses with. And then he makes this stunning statement that we have to have peace with men and God. In fact, he even goes so far as to say that we cannot enjoy peace with our Father in heaven until we have peace with our fellow men. To be reconciled is more than just to forgive and forget because it entails this coming to terms with the person you have an offense against or that has an offense against you before you can worship God. Well, that's just wonderful. I'm already in church this morning. Now you're telling me that I can't really worship you unless I've dealt with the people I have offenses with. Yes, we can be here and we can worship. We can do all the things. We can hang all the ornaments of worship around us. But it sounds like Jesus is saying God's not hearing it. Because 
we haven't made peace with those we are not at peace with. <sighs> this, is, this is almost too much. We cannot really understand how to live out these commands of Jesus on anger until we understand our anger. The first thing thing about anger is it's almost always rooted in fear. We fear losing something, and whatever it is that we fear losing, we react with anger to protect it. Someone says or does something that reminds us of a time when we were deeply wounded emotionally by a different person in the past, right? This person we're standing in front of us didn't hurt us, but they made the mistake of saying or doing something that reminds us of the person that hurted us. And in a moment, and often subconsciously, we recall the events and all the gaping wounds and all those repressed feelings and they explode out of our heart. And the fear of it happening again leads to that flash of anger across our eyes. And then the venom spews out of our mouth. Or even worse, the hand turns violent. It is the reason Jesus tells us uh, to deal with the offense we have and not ignore or suppress it. To genuinely acknowledge of this wrong and its hurt and followed by forgiveness are anger killers. Let me say that again. Genuinely acknowledgement of the hurt and it's followed by forgiveness are anger killers. And Jesus does not command us just to forgive and forget. He expects us to reconcile. Reconcile is a much bigger act than forgiving. It involves a genuine and sincere effort to deal with the offenses of the past and to go forward living in harmony with the one we're at odds with. It often will require the aid of others as peacemakers or mediators when the offenses are big and large. And Jesus expects us to do that. Is there no end to these things that you're expecting from us? Really? I don't want to do this. I don't want to remember that event. And I sure don't want to talk to that person. And the last thing I want to do is involve another person to actually help us get through this. I'm happy to involve another person to get them on my side to help me punish that person. But to involve another person from the outside to actually help me solve the problem and build peace and make reconciliation, I don't want that. It is necessary for me to take a moment here to, to, to make some very clear distinctions about what is and what is not expected with these kinds of offenses. First, forgiving and trust are not synonymous. While God Christ in the Bible calls us to forgive our offenders, he does not mean that we are to be trusting again with the same situations or opportunities to commit the same offense again. In fact, it must be earned. Trust must be earned. We, we can say forgiveness is not earned, but trust is. We could also say that forgiveness cannot be withheld, but trust can be withheld. Forgiving is not letting them off the hook either. By forgiving the person who's done an offense against us, we are not just letting them get away with it. Forgiveness, okay, this is very important, forgiveness is a choice by us as the victim. We choose to give up our claim to revenge and punishment and seeking our own justice against that person. The key there is my own justice. I willingly give that up. We choose to turn them over to God and to let him extract revenge and execute justice 
against our person. We consciously hand it to our Heavenly Father, knowing that their offenses against us will be met with divine justice and punishment in this life and the next, or on the cross of Jesus as he took their punishment for their crime against us. Forgiving is not minimizing or downplaying the physical and emotional mental damage done to us or the victims. In fact, I can tell you from my own experience that until you openly admit what happened to you and acknowledge the full extent of the pain you have experienced, you cannot forgive. I advocate for a full and relentless inventory of the harm done to you and in the process of dealing with what happened to it. You cannot release a hurt you have not acknowledged. You cannot release a hurt you have not acknowledged. Forgiveness is a transaction that occurs between the victim and God, and it requires no action or acknowledgement by the offending party. Reconciliation is a different matter. Reconciliation requires active participation by both the offended and the offending parties. Those offended must explain to the offender what they did and how it harmed them. The offender must acknowledge their actions and the harm it did. The offender must also seek in some way to make amends for their wrong. If the offender is unwilling to do so on any of these actions, reconciliation cannot occur and the offended party can walk away knowing the failed reconciliation is not their fault. They did their part and the other party was unwilling to do theirs. We can leave unreconciled, but with a clear conscience with them and God. Now, reconciliation is relatively easy when it's a small offense. It's one thing to acknowledge the wrongs done and forgive the offender when they clearly mistreated us for their own advantage. However, when the offense is large, that is very hard. It is quite another thing to come to terms with the injury done by physical or sexual abuse and forgive the abuser. Does Jesus expect us to reconcile with those people too? Yes, I'm going here. That's right, I'm going to this place. One of the reasons I'm going here is nobody wants to talk about it in the church. We, unfortunately, we don't have enough time to navigate the deep and treacherous waters of working through the kind of deep and traumatizing hurts like abuse this morning. And when it comes to the subject of abuse, we need to acknowledge that reconciliation may not be possible. It may very well be unfeasible. Nor may it be good for the victim to attempt reconciliation. What is doable and what must be done is to be able to stand before our Heavenly Father and have a clear conscience about having done all we can do to make reconciliation with the abuser possible. Not probable, possible. That means we have to deal with the hurt and the pain of the abuse we have to wrestle with the anger and the murderous desires and the turn for, and the desire for justice and revenge. We have to turn that over to God and receive His healing of our heart, soul, and body wounds. And then 
after wise and careful discussion with mature believers, make that decision to face the abuser or just stop at this moment and let it be until God brings us to facing them, if ever. Now, I can imagine at this point, some of you are maybe thinking, well, it's fine for you to lay out all of this and explain what we are to do as victims. But could you practice what you preach? Can you practice what you preach if abuse or an equally traumatizing wrong was done to you? No, I couldn't for a very long time. I couldn't for a very long time because I kept it a secret, hiding it in my shame and fear. Fear fear that I would be weak if I admitted I was hurt. What I didn't realize was that almost every decision I made was driven by my secret. Fear and anger would just suddenly rush over me at times and I could not give an explanation as to why. I mean, it was just such a little problem. That little problem had just triggered all the emotions from my traumatizing event, which I had suppressed and buried down as deep as I could and hid from everyone. And so it was for 30 years. For 30 years, I buried, I suppressed, I denied, I refused to face what had happened. Until God in his relentless loving pursuit of me brought brought me He brought me to a place that I was desperate enough for freedom that I'd finally face what happened to me and be a relentless and do a relentless inventory of the harm done to me and the harm I inflicted on others and myself in my response to the hurt. It was only uh, it was only after I could acknowledge that before men what had happened to me and what I had done in response to it that I could release all of those torments. I could I could forgive those who played the key and active role in the wrong done to me, and only then could I receive God's forgiveness for my own destructive responses. And when I looked out, and when I look out upon each of you and ask you to walk into the darkest, blackest, most terrifying events of your past, face all of it, what was done to you and how you responded, to tell the most scariest secrets you've kept maybe even from your spouse, Face it all so you can be free from the chains that shackle you. When I ask you to do that, I know exactly what I'm asking you to do. I know how it feels like I'm asking too much of you. Yet I ask it anyway because I know the reward waiting on the other side of this dark, black, cold, frightening valley. On the other side of this very dark path is Jesus awaiting you with open, loving arms, awaiting you to come to him so that he can give you the healing embrace you so desperately need and want and a healing that only he can give you. But here's the other part. Even though you can't feel him, he is there with you through this dark path. You are not walking it alone. 
and to the degree you are willing, I or others will walk it with you. Your first steps to freedom begin here in this room right now. Pray with me. Lord, you know, you know what every person has been through. You know the fear that surrounds every secret. You know the destruction it's wreaking in their lives. And you know the love you have for us, the relentless pursuing love to bring us out of these dark prison cells. And Father, I I pray in the name of Jesus that your spirit would open the doors of unbelief so that every person in this room who are still struggling with the deep traumatizing events of their past would believe that you desire to heal them and set them free. And in so doing, become an example of your grace and the glory of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would shatter the fear surrounding the secrets. I pray that you would bring forth your children out of darkness and into light. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause the rest of us to be willing to walk alongside our dear friends and brothers and sisters as they walk through this dark valley. And I pray you would do all of this so that they will be free, that you will redeem them from the pit of their secrets. And we ask it in your holy, precious, powerful, blood-stained hands, Jesus. Amen.